0: Let's look now at Romans chapter 5. Chris took us through verse 11 last week and so this morning, uh, which I thought I was going to be able to to sit out there and and take in the Word. I mean, Chris, I was so blessed by that sermon last week. I was looking forward to another week and uh, hated he uh, had to run to St. Louis. but, uh, But I've really been blessed by this passage this week. And uh, I hope you will be too. So let's look at Romans chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 12. Paul wrote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The very words of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. And we thank you that you just don't tell us what we want to hear, but you tell us what is real and true. Father, this is a tough, tough passage. And it strikes at the very heart of our self-righteousness. It strikes at the very heart of what we don't want you to be. <laughs> and yet, embracing the truth of your Word right here is the very the very thing we need to do to experience the freedom and joy of bowing our knee to you and letting you be God and us simply being your children and your faithful servants. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you teach us? Would you remove the distractions of anything that would distract? And would you make sense of my words and my illustrations and my rambling? And would you do what only you can do? And that is come as a a power that is within us to take your word and cut our hearts like a knife, but only to heal. Father, I pray that you'd be with that skeptic and you would be with that one who thinks he doesn't need your word and that you would bring your word to bear on our hearts and that you would draw us in greater faith and greater relationship and the freedom of just letting Your salvation reign over our lives through Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for this message. Thank You that it's true. And may the truth set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love downtown Memphis. I've lived here for five and a half years, and even when I wasn't living here as a native Memphian, I would come to downtown often. Even back in the day when no one else was coming to downtown Memphis, I would come to downtown Memphis. In high school, I would drive down here just to be downtown. I would go to Mud Island, sit on the wall, and look at the river. We've lived here, as I said, five and a half years. We shop, we eat. I've been in most every restaurant. I've, I've been in every coffee shop. I've, I've been in in many of the pubs. We go to shows at the Orpheum. We catch a game maybe once a year, a baseball game at AutoZone Park, and we catch as many Grizzly games at FedEx Forum as we can score tickets to. I love to run the Greenbelt Park. I'm a regular at the downtown Y. But, but something happened to me in early or mid-November. I went to New York City. It ruined me. <laughs> New York City is truly the city that never sleeps. You can do something every minute of every hour of every day. It doesn't slow down. There are more restaurants, pubs, coffee shops, and shopping in one square block in in Manhattan than there are in all of our downtown. Two million people live in Manhattan. Nine million people live in New York City. 30,000 people live in downtown Memphis. There is no comparison. What Paul is doing for us in this passage this morning is he is drawing a comparison and a contrast to show the superiority of one over another. He's taking who we are in Adam as the one who represented us in that garden so many years ago and comparing that to the one who went to another garden. And represented us in a different way on a tree before God. And he says, really where he's driving us is he wants us to understand that there is no comparison. There is no comparison to the life that we we think we can get under Adam versus the life that we can really have in Christ Jesus now, why is he doing this? Why is he giving this point? Why is he drawing this this very extreme and, to be honest with you, utterly offensive uh, um, illustration? It's because we don't get it. From chapter 1, I mean, why didn't he stop in chapter 1, verse 16, where he said, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Why didn't he just stop there? Why did he have to go beyond that and go in chapter 3 and talk about the depth of our sin? And then in in, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23 say, but now there is a righteousness from God apart from the law that has been manifested to us through faith. He could have just stopped there, but he just keeps going and keeps going and we're all the way in chapter 5 and he is still hammering this point. Why? Because there is something deep in us that resists believing the all-sufficiency of the grace of Jesus Christ. There is something in us, and it's that that DNA of Adam, where he said, you know what, I've heard what you said, God, but I, I don't want to leave you completely, but I think there's a better way. I think my way of getting life, how I want to order my life, what I want to call sin or not sin, how I want to get pleasure, I think my way is better and I think I can have my way and you. You see, Adam wasn't completely rejecting God. He, he, He wanted God to be around. He just didn't want to walk with Him. Sound familiar? It should because that's the heart of every human being that's been born since then. It's all of our hearts. See, we want to manipulate a way of living where God has to serve us. And then we don't understand when life is not working out why it's not working out. Well, it must be God's fault. It's crazy. And yet, that's how every single one of us lives. And so what Paul is doing is he is coming uh, deep into our hearts and he's saying, guys, I want you to see this comparison and contrast so that maybe finally you'll let go of trying to live Adam's way and you'll just bow your knee to Jesus and take His salvation. That you'll stop trying to get salvation. Thank you, brother. You'll stop trying to get salvation on your own and you'll just rest in the great salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And you say, "Okay, well, I do that. Good. And then life will finally then I can go on just living the life I want to live. No. You see, Romans is the most theologically based book in the Bible. And all the great theologians come to Romans. And if you really want to be a theologian, you master Romans and you stand and you teach on it so that you can press everybody. And yet, listen to this, Paul didn't write this as a treatise for us to master that we might you know, take our knowledge and, and feel better than other people because we've mastered it. But we've seen how many times in the first five chapters Paul has talked about Jew and Gentile. How many times has he mentioned his audience, which is a, a racially and ethnically diverse body, and he has driven point this, this this point home that if you believe the depth of this gospel then something will happen. Not only will you be individually freed to live a life for God, but you're going to start loving people around you that are not like you. You see, what we want to do, how we do church, is still Adam's way. We want to go to church, yes, a church that preaches Jesus, that's high and lofty in its theology, that makes us feel good by its headiness or, or maybe the, the extremeness of its emotional worship. But what we, uh, what we still want to maintain at the end of the day, yeah, but I still want to go to, to church with people like me. I, I still want to go to church and everything from the music to whatever makes me feel at home. And Paul says, listen, this is what God's seeking to do with His gospel. His gospel is so powerful that it will reverse what happened at Babel. It will reverse what happened in the fall. It will take a Jew and a Gentile who hate each other and whose parents raised them to hate each other and make them brothers and sisters in Christ so that the world will then stand back and go, wait a minute, this isn't culture plus Jesus equals church. This is Jesus because people are loving each other and people are living in a radically different way. You see, there is nothing that, 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 that Paul teaches or preaches in this chapter or in this book that in any way is apart from us or somehow alienated from our everyday experience. So let's get the extremeness of the gospel, the extreme superiority of Jesus, that we might be this radical community, that we might, that we might be the answer or or an answer or part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, make them one. Make these people one, even as we are one. So let's look at it. Only two points this morning. And you say, hallelujah. How could that be a, a sermon by Richard Reeves? Well, Here it is. There are really two major points that Paul is making in this passage. The first is this. Jesus is superior to Adam because the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us all. Do you hear me? The guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us all. And we don't want to believe that, but we need to. Last Sunday night, Uh, I watched the Golden Globes. Anybody else watch the Golden Globes? Any other uh, Hollywood people? All right. Well, you saw Leonardo DiCaprio uh, win a Golden Globe for his lead role in the movie uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. I hadn't seen the movie because, primarily because I I, I read an open letter that a girl by the name of Christina McDowell wrote, and, and it was published in the L.A. Times on Christmas Day. And it was about her father, who was one of the characters portrayed in The The Wolf of Wall Street. And her father had had embezzled money from a number of investors and and, and left a number of investors, primarily older people, broke in their retirement. Uh, Her father took money (laughs) that these people had worked their entire lives for so that he could live the kind of lifestyle of of private jets and houses all over the country. And it made her sick and it, 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 it hurt her. Listen to what she wrote. The day my father had to surrender to prison, I drove him. My mother had locked herself in the bathroom crying and throwing up. After my father successfully laundered money in my name hiding what was left of our assets from the government in a Wells Fargo bank account, I arrived home to discover multiple phone calls from creditors and attorneys threatening to sue me. He'd left me in nearly $100,000 worth of debt. He left and never told me. After all that liquidated money was gone from the Wells Fargo bank account, things got pretty bad. My younger sister ran away at 17. My older sisters struggled to finish school in Texas. I couch surfed for two years, sometimes dressing um, out of my car and stealing pieces of salami out of my boyfriend's refrigerators in the middle of the night because I was so hungry and so ashamed that I couldn't feed myself. Tips at the restaurant weren't cutting it. It's a pretty confusing experience to go from flying private with my dad to an evening where he's begging you for a piece of your paycheck so he can buy food for dinner. She published this in the L.A. Times on Christmas Day. There's a little bitterness going on in Christina McDowell, couldn't you say? And yet what I hear from her is a daughter who has been deeply betrayed and deeply hurt by her dad. And whereas she admits in that letter, and she admits to snorting cocaine and and, and other activities in her open letter, but whereas she confesses that, you get the sense that there's one person in her life that no matter how bad she is, she knows she's better than. And don't we all have those people? I mean, I'm not talking about the people out in the world. I'm talking about the people in the church. I mean, we talk about, yeah, man, I'm the biggest sinner I know. But then we catch ourselves talking about other people, gossiping about other people, distancing other people from our lives because, oh, you don't understand. I can't love that person. They've hurt me too deeply. What they've done to me it was, was just too much. Or their personality drives me insane and I can't stand to be around them. But what we're really saying is if they would just wise up and be like me. You see, we're all trying to hold on to this last little shred of righteousness. This last something in our hearts where we believe that, that, that if people would just get it together like us in this one little area then they would really be good enough for us to be around And what we don't understand is that one little shred that we're still holding on to is holding us back from the grace and mercy of God. Because we are distancing ourselves not just from that person, but we're distancing ourselves from God. We're communicating to Him because everything we do and everything we say is in His eyes. He sees it all. And so what we're doing is we're saying, God, yeah, but. Come on. I mean, I know I am jacked up, but. Look at that guy. Look at that girl. And we feel good about us by feeling bad about at least one person. And we know we have many more than that. See, what Christina McDowell doesn't understand is that holding on to that one person, holding on to that dad who hurt her immensely, hear me, I'm not belittling his sin against her. I'm not saying what he did against her was not that bad and she just needs to get over it. I'm saying that she she needs to go to the very depth of what he did to her, feel it all, and then look at God and say, I am no better. That's the way of freedom. Now where do you get that? Because what Paul does is he takes us to this this case of Adam. Now, why Adam? Just like when we looked at Abraham, we had to do a little work to show that Abraham was the hero of the church. Well, Adam was the the murderer of the church. He was the evil character in the story that nobody wanted to be like. I mean, who has ever wanted to be like Adam? And that's his point. Because if there's one guy that we can just blame for everything, it's Adam. And we really can. We can blame him for everything. He has messed our lives up. The next time you feel condemned by your sin, cuss Adam. That, we can say S-O-B. It doesn't mean South of Bill and that case. I mean, seriously. I've had so many people wrestle with this saying, well, why does God count me guilty when I wasn't back there? I wasn't the one doing that sin. It's because of this. Because Adam represents us all in the eyes of God. And you would have done no better and you probably would have done worse. And so would I. Listen to what Paul is doing here. I'm sorry, man. This thing is just not know if It's my long hair. I thought it was my sweater. So I took it off. But um, anyway, l- listen to this passage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Do you hear what I, what, what Paul is saying? He's saying, yeah. God holds you responsible for what Adam did. All right. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, humanity was cursed. God's opinion of us was settled before he even gave the law to Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though, uh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He goes on in verse 15, he says, for if many died through the one man's trespass, what he's saying is we all died through that one man's trespass, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. We're all condemned because of what Adam did. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, death reigned through that one man, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse 18, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying that in the eyes of God, he has taken the guilt of Adam and he has credited your account and my account and every human being that's ever been born. Guilty. Enemy of God, sinner, before you ever do anything. If you understand that, then that truth alone obliterates the way you and I practically live every single moment of every single day. Because this is how we live this is a good day, it's going to be a good day or a bad day depending upon X. And X is not the law of God. It's not, oh, if I can just love God and love my neighbor enough today, then I'll feel good about me. It's if I can just keep my diet, if I can just exercise, if I'm you know, kind of good or you know, I have that one opportunity to do a little good in, in the midst of working or whatever, or you know, I can please my employee if I just get the right interview, if I get a raise, if I get this, if I get that, if I get another job, if I get a husband, if I get a wife, if we don't have a fight, whatever it is. We all create all these little laws and we hold them up and, and, and write them in the stone of our minds and hearts and we say, okay, it's a good day today, I feel good about me if... And what Paul is saying is, here's what God thinks about your little laws. You're condemned in Adam. Give it up. It's not just our sin that condemns us. It's God that condemns us in Adam. We really believe that if we be nice, live a good life, God will be there for us. That's how we all believe. Be good. Live a good life. Everything will work out. And God never promised that. He never promised that. He never said, okay, I'm going to sit in heaven. If you just be good, if you live a good life, I'm going to be there for you. He said, if it's based on your performance... I will never be there for you. Do you hear that? We are condemned in Adam. The way of Adam was to manipulate God to be his servant. And that's what we all want. Why did I lose this? Why did my child do this? Why is my life like this? Why hasn't God done this? It has to be Him. No, because we deserve whatever is happening to us. Because we are cursed in Adam. Modern man, and you know, it's so cliche to say that, there has been no man in the existence of humanity that has ever liked that message. So modern and ancient men hate that. Because there's nothing you can do. You got it? Don't eat it. But there was another Adam. (laughs) Are you ready for the good part? There's another Adam. Jesus is superior because He imputes righteousness that results in eternal life. You see, we have two brothers. And one condemns us because God counts us according to His sin. But then we have another brother who lifts us up in righteousness and who changes our lives and endears God's heart to us and our heart to God. I saw a video this week about two brothers and I just couldn't hold myself back. I had to share it with you. Watch this video and we'll close things out. Touching story, right? I bawled like a baby. Um, Had headphones on. I'm glad Rachel didn't know what I was watching. She couldn't tell I was over there in the corner of the den uh, crying. But it's so much more than a touching story. And there is real method to my madness in showing this to you. Uh, You see, it's not just to pull that emotional string in your heart and set you up for the kill. Although it would be very easy to do, (laughs) probably, at this point. But you see, that is the reason it connects with us as human beings. Whether you believe the gospel or not, is because we were made to be loved like that. (laughs) We were made for someone to notice us in our paralysis and death of sin, We were made for someone more beautiful and with so many more abilities and so forth to recognize us and to come toward us and to love us in that way. And do you understand now why Paul is is saying, guys, to really understand the freedom of the Gospel, you have to understand that you are hopeless in Adam. That religion, that trying harder... That becoming more disciplined is not going to save you. Because you can't pull yourself out of the condition you're in. But there's one who can. You have an elder brother. You have one who said, You know what? My life for yours. I don't have to do it, but I want to do it. Because you're my brother, you're my sister. I want my life. To be spent for your joy. I want to pull you along. (laughs) I want to give you life. Because if you don't, you're not going to know it. Do you get that? And do you understand the effect if you do get it? If you do understand that, if Caden, who's the one with cerebral palsy, if he gets that, what his brother's doing for him... He's not just going to write a book about the facts of what his brother has done for him and hold it up and go to conferences and talk about what his brother has done for him and, 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 and parse the words and, 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 and you know try to, try to make it this heady thing. He's going to go to conferences and he's going to say, This is my brother and I owe him my life. There is a relationship because of what he's done for me. That's what Paul is doing. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us is not just to be some point of theology that in a book that we put on our shelf or rest in our Kindle. It is to be the thing that absolutely gets us out of bed in the morning. It's the reason we go to work. It's the reason we try again. It's the reason we don't give up when we want to give up. Because we have an elder brother And He is greater than we can possibly imagine. And if we would just open our eyes and understand what He has done for us in His work in living under the law and obeying it perfectly and then going to the cross and becoming our sin and that now through faith we are declared righteous because He was declared sinful and that endears the heart of God to us. It makes it so that we cannot drive the love of God away from us. And you won't believe that because of your pride, not because you're so good. You see, what's driving you in your desire to be better and what's driving me most days is that we still believe we can do something where God will look down and say, finally, you got it. I've been waiting. But the joy and freedom of the Gospel is that God looks down and He doesn't see you. He sees you in Christ. And He says, oh, I'm pleased because it is finished. It's done. Listen to this. Verse 15 forward. But the free gift... Man, how much money would you spend for that? You don't have to spend a dime. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore... You know why God's given you the law? No, so that you can have a ladder to climb up and oh, I feel good today because I did my quiet time. I helped somebody on the street. Now the law is there to say the reason you did that is because you thought you could buy God's love through it. You are profane. You think that God is a slot machine that you can put the right money in and get the right result. What a pathetic view of God. That's what God says if He just takes those acts in and of themselves. No, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, guess what? Grace abounded all the more. Oh, what a God that He would respond to our sin with abundant grace. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, This deep truth of the Gospel that Jesus is our righteousness and He's the end of us trying to work up a righteousness that's good enough is our life. And if you would but embrace it this morning, if you would let go of all the garbage that you're trying to do to get God's love, if you would but let go of your guilt and let the atoning work of Jesus be enough for you and understand how arrogant it is for you to hold on to the guilt of your sin when He has gone to the cross and paid for it and you think there's something else you can do to make things better with God. But fall on the grace of Jesus. That's all you have to do, but that's what you have to do. Oh, what good news this is, dear friends. So what? The so what is this? His standing before God being in, is being imputed to us, makes us lovable to God. And yet we still want to go back to the law. Tulian Chavidian, hardest name on the planet to pronounce, uh, but his new book, and I, I, I literally, if there's one book to read this year, it's One Way Love, Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World by Tullian Chavidian. One Way Love. Just Google that. Download it. Order it. Unbelievable. Here's a quote. There are two laws that we typically choose from. The law that says I can find freedom and fullness of life if I keep the rules, or the law that says I can find freedom and fullness of life if I break the rules. Either way, you're still trying to save yourself, which means both are legalistic because both are self-salvation projects. You can't save yourself. So what do I do? There were some people that asked Jesus that exact question. He had addressed about 5,000. And they all got hungry because he had had spent a lot of time addressing them. It was time for them to eat. And what he did is he took a few small loaves and a a bread and a a few small fish and he multiplied it in enough to feed 5,000 and probably more um commentators think that only the men would have been counted. Um, you know, I understand that's, you know, very, um, um, very condescending, but that's probably what happened. And yet after the meal, there were uh, like, I can't remember, 12 baskets, 15 basketfuls of uh, bread and fish left over. And so they all eat, they fall asleep, Jesus goes to the other side of the lake, they come to find Him, and this is what He said to them, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Do you know what God wants from you today? To believe in Him whom He has sent. Is He enough? Can you just rest in Him? Is His righteous record enough for you? Is it enough for me? Oh, may it be so. And may we be men and women who move from here to radical living. You know, I love Paul because he thinks like a lot of us Westerners think. Next week, which I'm, I'm so excited that I told Chris I wasn't going to let him preach it because, you know, if I were really godly, I would let him preach next week because I'm taking his place this week. But I said, no, brother, i got to preach Romans 6, the first part. Why? Because it starts out with this question, what? then what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's what many of you are thinking right now. So what does life look like if all i got to do is receive the grace of Jesus? We'll come back next week. (laughs) But this week, I hope that you'll receive the grace of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the King. You are the Master. You are the elder brother that's better than any brother we've ever had. You were the one that lived with us in mind and heart. And in every act of obedience, you weren't doing it for you to try to earn favor with God. You were doing it for us to try to earn God's favor for us. And you did it. And you went to the cross and you said, it's finished. And then you you rose from the dead and then you ascended on high and you sit at the right hand of God the Father. And one day, someday, you're coming back to end all of this mess. And to usher us into true eternal life. So we thank you, our elder brother. We thank you, our master. We thank you, our king. We thank you, our Lord. We thank you, our our loving friend. And we pray that in the meantime, you would help us but believe. Oh, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Father, would you create a radical community here in which we believe the gospel, but we don't boast in a a belief in a gospel that's better than someone else's belief. But I pray, O God, that we would rejoice in the gospel that we might be some good to you and others and we might lay our lives down for those around us and that no one would even know our names, but the name of Jesus and His fame would be spread throughout Memphis and beyond because of this little body here that's willing to believe the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And I just lift all this to you in His name. Amen.